Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5. And this morning in the sermon, I'm just going to tell you, you will be moving from passage to passage because as we look at uh, the theme this morning, uh, it will require us uh, to move around. But generally, we are going to be in the book of Mark. And uh, I'm just telling you that uh, in advance here as you think about the different things. <clears throat> when it comes to history and it comes to U.S. history, there's uh, an interest in our presidents. Uh, we've had good presidents, we've had bad presidents, and we've had uh, all sorts of different characters that have been in the White House. But if you know anything about uh, being president, there's always the individuals that when they're a kid, they get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be president of the United States. And I'm thinking, really, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Because to be the president of the United States, there's a lot of responsibilities. In fact, uh, one of the most famous uh, picture studies of an individual uh, is uh, a picture of Abraham Lincoln. If you look at a picture of Abraham Lincoln at the beginning of his presidency and then look at uh, just a picture that's taken a few days before he was shot, uh, you can see the aging that went on as the president. You say, why was that? Well, he had all sorts of responsibilities. Uh, he was trying to maintain a country that had uh, shredded itself and divided uh, and try and get competing views and competing parties. You even look at his own cabinet. He had individuals that he chose because they were good at what they did, but they weren't necessarily ones that got along with one another. And so he's trying to maintain that, to maintain a country uh, and uh, try and fight a war and do all of those things. Being president has a lot of responsibilities. You would think there's not much time for anything else. There's not much care for anything else. But it seemed like President Lincoln uh, had a soft spot for his children. He had four boys. And as such, the house uh, that he was in, the White House, was quite rambunctious. The boys, uh, the White House at the time was two stories tall, and so they would uh, take the flat roof and they annexed that as their playing field. Uh, their babysitter, which was Julia Taft, which uh, really gives us some stories of the boy's life, uh, said one time they contrived to have a circus on the roof of the White House. Uh, the, old, uh, the boys would oftentimes dress in old bonnets and silks and charge the staff a nickel uh, to hear them sing, Old Abe Lincoln Came Out of the Wilderness. Uh, they did all sorts of things. They figured out where the bell system was at in the building that would call the detectives and the servants and secretaries and cabinet members, and they would pull the bells just to see who, <clears throat> who would respond and who would come. Times cabinet members would fume at the interruptions and the pranks, and even the gardeners called them wildcats. Times boys doused dignitaries with a fire hose, and later they even drilled the White House serving staff like troops. Historians and others uh, describe the, the children as being rambunctious, rollicking, uh, spontaneous, and imaginative. Their playful imagination at work, the boys once woke the weary president of the United States with Indian war hoops came into the room where he was at sleeping. They'd set up a prisoner war camp and interned a neighborhood cat and a patient dog. 
One occasion that uh, really stood out to some of the people and the nanny that uh, was the one responsible for taking care of these uh, young boys, that one day uh, two of the boys and two of their cousins were at the White House and she suddenly heard yelling and screaming and a racket that was out of control and she tried to go in and calm it down and she opened the door. And lo and behold, there were four boys there and President Abe Lincoln on the floor wrestling with them. In the middle of all of his responsibilities, you found him uh, with his boys uh, wrestling with them and the boys trying to hold him down. She noted this, the president's broad grin and turned to leave. uh, And a couple of the boys came and said, come on, help us, help us hold him down. And we think about Abe Lincoln and we think about other presidents. We're always interested in how they are with their families. And we have seen pictures of presidents with their kids playing uh, in the desks uh, of the Oval Office and other things like that. And we think there's all these responsibilities that children would be an annoyance. There's really, really important tasks to be done. And that uh, at times you would think that uh, the president's kids or other children would never get the attention of a president. Now thinking about that, we may think this way about God. That God's too busy to have to worry about children. You think about this, he's the one who uh, all creation exists by him, and by him all things continue on. There's a lot of things to worry about, and national politics, and all of these things that have to be maintained, that there really uh, is not a whole lot of time for God to concern himself with children. But what we've seen over the last few Sunday nights, and even last week uh, in the morning and evening services, that we're reminded of the fact that God declared this statement about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is what God declared about himself. And there may be a thought that this only applies to great people that God is merciful and kind and is abundant in certain things, or a select group of people. We went through our our study as we saw that statement throughout the Old Testament, and there were some that thought maybe this was a statement that was only for Jews. And it's only for them. They only receive God's compassion and mercy and His abundant goodness. Uh, They're the only ones that receive God's attention. But you get to the story of Jonah. These people who were foreign and uh, ones who were the terrorists of their day uh, that uh, Jonah had to go and preach to Nineveh and the Assyrians and and he goes through and he tries to flee. We're well aware of the story. He tries to flee and he's cast into the water. Whale swallows him. He's eventually cast up on the shore and he goes and preaches in Nineveh. And you read the message that he preaches. He doesn't seem to be so wholehearted about it. He declares that in 40 days, God's going to judge. And he just kind of walks through the city declaring this. And the response is uh, incredible. 
You have this nation that is a a nation that worships multiple gods, uh, calling upon the one God. And Jonah goes outside the city and he's mad. He's mad that God's not going to, uh, in a sense, destroy the enemy of the nation of Israel that had done so many horrible things. And when God comes to talk to him, he responds with the fact that he knew that God would be one. And he quotes this statement back to God that he would be merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth that he would keep mercy for thousands. It upset him because he preached his message and he knew God would show kindness to them. And there's an interesting statement that ends the book where you have this whole discussion where Jonah's mad and angry that God's not going to do something to the city of Nineveh. And God just ends with a, a question for Noah, or excuse me, Jonah, and it's this. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons? You say six score thousand, what's that? 120,000 persons. They cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. What you see God there, he's simply saying there's 120,000 people in that town that don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. He's talking about either people who are handicapped or children. And more than likely, he's talking about children here, that there's 120,000 children there, and God wants to show compassion to them. You may think, well, God really doesn't have time for children. And we looked last week at John chapter 1 that Jesus came into the world as the Word. He's going to communicate what God's like to the world for them to understand this is what God's like. This is how He would function if He was here on earth. This is what God is like towards all people. And he came and dwelt amongst men, John 1.14. He, he lives amongst the individuals and he's displaying their grace and truth and grace upon grace. He's displaying this as he goes through his ministry to different people. And as you read through the Gospels, what you find is that time and time and time again that Jesus is moved with compassion for children you find it throughout the the gospel stories you you may tend to miss this but there is at times when jesus is highly pressed about things to do that he is concerned about children and for us as we go into a week where we're going to work uh, mainly with children and we have an emphasis like this there might be the thought process is it really worth time to do this type of thing is it really worth our effort to, to do this? And in doing things like this, in a church ministry that has nursery and children's programs, and we have a program like this, is it really worth our time? Could there not be greater things to do for our ministry? And you know what? What we find in the Gospels is this, is that Jesus has a compassion He's moved, the Son of God is moved with compassion for children. And I just want us to kind of go through these passages and learn some things about ministering to children and having the heart of God in ministering to children. 
See, what you see in the stories of the Gospels is this, is that, first of all, Jesus is moved with compassion for the needs of children. The story that you are looking at in Mark chapter 5, it starts in verse number 22, and it's a story of this man. Behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And we miss the statement in verse number 24. Oftentimes, Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. The idea is that he's being pressed together by the crowd like a piece of clay being molded. Uh, There's so many people there that are demanding his time. And here you have this father who comes and says, I have a 12-year-old daughter who is breathing her last. She needs your help. I mean, you even read the story and you have the story that's in between where this woman, as Jesus is trying to go and get through the crowds, there's someone who reaches out of the crowd. There's this woman that's there who's had this issue of blood for 12 years. Kind of ironic. You have a 12-year-old child and a woman who suffered for 12 years. Uh, There's this connection. The stories are designed to be connected. But in the midst of this, this lady's looking for healing and the Lord has to stop and deal with her, her. And he does and he heals her. But with all these things going on, you can imagine just the thronging of this crowd that Jesus is on a mission to go and find a 12-year-old girl to heal her. You find as the story goes along, you, you get down to verse number... verse number 34, or excuse me, 35 says this, while he yet spake, he was speaking to the woman that she had been cleansed of her disease. There came a ruler of the synagogue's house saying, which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult. And them that wept and wailed greatly. You have to understand what went on in these uh, type of uh, funeral situations. When you had somebody die, you buried them on the day that they died. And so you would actually hire people that would be professional mourners, yellers. And you'd hire people who played flutes and other instruments to play loudly. So there would be an announcement to the community that somebody had died. And you would come and find out who had died. And so Jesus comes here and there's a press of more people that are there. And when he gets there, verse 39, when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entered into where the damsel lay. And he took the damsel by the hand. Now, that's something that we may pass right by. say, what do you mean that we pass right by that statement? What's so important about that? This was a person who was dead. You know what this would have done for Jesus? He would become ritually unclean. 
in the society by touching this young lady. She's dead. Dead body. But you know what? The Lord doesn't even stop with that. He could have healed her at a distance, but what He does is He actually reaches out and grabs her by the hand and says to her, as you read through the statement there, He took the damsel by the hand and said, Talitha Akumi, which being interpreted is simply this, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise! And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of age of twelve years, and they were astonished to the great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given to her. It's kind of a weird way to do a conclusion where you've just raised somebody from the dead. And you go, why is he saying, don't tell anybody? Well, he's got other things that he needs to do. But he went out of his time and out of his schedule and out of his plan from human perspective to go and reach out to a 12-year-old girl, the only child of this ruler of the synagogue. I mean, there's a compassion for Christ for young people. You have the story that was read this morning. Matthew chapter 9, or excuse me, Mark chapter 9, this story of Jesus coming off of the Mount of Transfiguration. And as he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this man that comes up and runs up to them. Mark 9, verse 17, this one said, Master, I brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. You go, what does that mean? It makes him mute. He can't talk. He's demon-possessed. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth, and he foameth, he gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. I spake to thy disciples that should cast them out, and they couldn't hunt. Now, Jesus kind of answers and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? He's really making a statement about his disciples who weren't able to cast out this demon. He's not saying this about this man. Sometimes people misunderstand that. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. Can you imagine a child in that kind of a situation? Can't communicate, regularly throws himself on the ground and, and, and foams, at times is nearly in danger of casting themselves in the fire, or drowning, and that this is a regular thing. And Jesus even asks uh, the, the question, when had this been the case in verse 21? And it's of a child, that this has gone, gone on the whole life. You find that in verse 22, this man says, oftentimes it had cast him in the fire into the waters to destroy him. But if thou can do anything, have what? Have compassion. God is abundant in mercy and compassion. Have compassion on me and help us. And Jesus said to him, If thou believest, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the Father cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And you read this story as Jesus saw that the people were running together. He rebuked the foul spirit. The spirit cried, verse 26, and rent him, and he was as if he were dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he was come to his house, the disciples asked, why could we not cast him out? And they said, well, you should have done some praying and some fasting about this. But you see in the story, Jesus going about and dealing with children. Children that need compassion. Children that need help. 
You find even a story, and we don't need to turn there, in John chapter 5 where a nobleman comes to Jesus and asks that Jesus would heal his son because he's on the point of death. And you read the story that Jesus, in his schedule, though he's got many things to do and he's planning on coming, uh, the man doesn't want him to come. And ultimately, Jesus heals this young man at a distance. It's about 20 miles away when he heals him and the nobleman comes back. See, in stories like that, we find that Jesus is not just worried about people of importance and people in in great positions. No, Jesus is concerned about the conditions of children. He's not ignorant of them. It's not that he goes about not caring, not concerned, not worried about what's going on. And you find uh, this to be the case. You can just look at these stories and find out that Jesus has a compassion for the needs of children. But secondly, what you find, and I want us to turn to Mark chapter 10, is that Jesus allows children to be a part of his kingdom. He allows them to be a part of his kingdom. Mark chapter 10, verse number 13, says this, And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. Now, that term, young children, uh, is a term that's oftentimes used to refer to babies and toddlers. And we're not talking 12-year-olds here. We're talking babies, small children. You say nursery children, yes. And you're thinking, these are children that really can't communicate and really can't uh, say any great things. And they're just asking the Lord as they come there to have uh, Him to bless their children. And the disciples, knowing what the schedule of Christ is like, you see at the end of verse 13, His disciples rebuked those that brought them. I mean, they're saying, do you not understand? He's got all sorts of responsibilities and you're bringing your kids to him. He doesn't have time for that. I mean, they thought they were doing a service for Christ. There's lots of important people and things that need to be done that babies and toddlers are not something that the Lord is going to concern himself with. You see in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, Look at his attitude. He is much displeased. And he said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, what you're doing is showing the fact that God isn't concerned about certain groups of people. And what you find is that you have individuals that with childlike faith and the faith of children are a part of the kingdom of heaven. You have to have a childlike faith. He even goes on to say this, verse 15, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not. There is no way a person's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, what you have going on here is that Jesus uh, has an openness to little children and it pictures his comprehensive concern for all people. 
by his openness to children, having even children that are of the age that really are not even able to communicate completely yet. By his openness to children, he shows the disciples whose attitudes was not the same, that every person is to be treated with sensitivity and received with love. I mean, Jesus notes this, that children are worthy kingdom candidates. Is a three-year-old or a four-year-old who comprehends certain things one who can become a Christian? The answer is absolutely. Let me ask this question, and I'm going to ask this, and I don't normally ask for responses during a sermon like this, but how many of you would say this, that you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before the age of 10? I mean, I think of my own salvation. I was a child who was in church all the time and age of five at a vacation Bible school. It finally clicked with me that I was a sinner just like everybody else showing up. I had some sort of comprehension that I go to church, I'm a good person. I heard a message in the vacation Bible school that said everyone was a sinner and it didn't matter if they went to church or not. Wow. And understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for me, a sinner, that I could be saved. That finally clicked with me as a five-year-old. See, you find that children are worthy of accepting Christ as Savior. They can do this. It's a wonderful thing about what Jesus did on the cross. It's so simple to understand. It's easy to comprehend though if you contemplate it there are a lot of things that you can just go this is incredible but even a child can understand it for jesus having these children here he he notes that children are worthy kingdom candidates and secondly he simply says this to his disciples that disciples are to have childlike faith and reliance that they are to have a faith like a child sometimes as adults we complicate things It's harder to get adults to come to understand and put their faith in Christ because there's all of these, but what if this, and what if that, and how about this, and these things here, and all these things here, and it's just simply, you have to put your faith and trust like a child does in someone that they trust. You know, you've seen this with small children is that you have a parent that says, go ahead and jump into my arms And the child, you know, not realizing that the parent's probably not strong enough and aren't good at catching them, go ahead and jump. There's a childlike faith about children that they just simply go, I put my trust in in complete reliance on something or someone. And what the Lord says is what you need to have is a childlike faith in what I'm about to do. Children are ones who have a faith that is exemplary in the midst of the story as jesus receives these children he you have this understanding that jesus receives children and takes time to bless them in the midst of a pressure-packed ministry it's touching and reveals much about his concern for individual people people of any size count he was not too busy for children though the disciples thought he was his attitude reminds the disciples that their mission is not only to powerful and well-known and well-thought-out people no it is also to those that are dependent and need help 
And so for us, we ought to learn from the fact that these individuals, Jesus considers in his own mind that these individuals are worthy to be part of his kingdom, that he truly does want them with him, and that they are capable of understanding and accepting what Jesus did for them. It can be done. And what you see in the, 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 another story, we read in Matthew chapter 9, and we read uh, quite a lot out of that, but I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 38. We didn't read this section, but what you see here is this, that Jesus expects his disciples to minister to children. That they do this. In Mark chapter 9, verse 38, it's just after the, the story where uh, you have the disciples arguing over who's the greatest and Jesus brings a child and teaches them a lesson. We're going to talk about this in just a second. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, it says uh, this. John said this, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. We forbade him, because he not followeth not us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for there is no man that shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak in my name. For he that is not against us is on our part, or is on our side. But then this statement in verse 41. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because, of ye, because ye belong to Christ, verily I shall say unto you, he shall not lose his own reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these, what does it say? Little ones. One of these little ones that believe in me. It is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. When you read this account, there's a warning for us and how we do minister to children. There's question in commentaries, but in the context of having children around, in all three of the Gospels accounts that tell this story here about this, that Jesus could be referring to young, young Christians, but possibly and very much likely he's referring to children. That if we cause children to stumble, and what does that mean throughout the Scripture? You have the scandal or thing that they trip over and they miss the Gospel. That we need to be very concerned in how we raise our children in our home. We need to be considerate of how we teach our children in our church environment. Because we don't want them to stumble. You know, they become upset at the one who is teaching the gospel to them because they've done something wrong or something of the like like that. That it's really a concern for us that we're accurate in the preaching of the gospel and presenting Christ by our lives that we're not a stumbling block. Because what the scripture says, if you are that type of person that is careless in these things, it really would be better for you to have a millstone tied about your neck. And you go, what's a millstone? Back in that day, that's how they ground stuff up. You had a big rock that sat on the ground that was flat, and you had a larger stone on top that usually had a bar in it that you could spin around that would grind this, and it was extremely heavy. And it just simply says this, it would be better for you to be cast in the city, sea and drowned than to harm one of these, what? Little ones. 
I mean, the Lord is, is giving warning that we, we don't take our ministry to children lightly. Something that we really don't concern ourselves with. No, it's a serious matter. It's a matter of life and death, eternal life, and eternal separation from God. And we do this lightly. The Lord does not have kind words for individuals that cause children to stumble. And so you see the heart of the Lord. I mean, the consequences for not being humble and servant-hearted are very serious. And causing one to stumble is to disable another's discipleship. This is so serious an offense to be the cause of another spiritual shipwreck is so serious an offense that a quick drowning would be preferable to the fate it deserves. And so the Lord warns us that we're careful about the way that we minister to children. It's a warning. But you see, going back in the passage, and we skipped over this, in verse number 33, we ought to remind ourselves that all people, doesn't matter who they are, are to be served. Verse 33, uh, And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? I told in other gospel accounts, he knows what they were arguing about. He's just walking along, and he's listening to them argue behind him. But he asked the question, what were you arguing about? Now, you have, earlier on in this, uh, this chapter, you have individuals who were able to be on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were able to see Elijah and Moses and those type of things. So there may have been that Peter and John and James were thinking, well, we're better than the other group because we got to see these things. And we even got to see a resurrection, uh, uh, the raising of this daughter earlier on. But you know what? We're more important than the rest of you. And so there's this argument that's going on. Who's the greatest amongst the disciples? <laughs> At least they, verse 34, they held their peace. For by the way, they disputed amongst themselves who should be the greatest. So what does Jesus do in order to teach this? He has a visual lesson. This is verse 35, he sat down. He called the twelve. And saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant, a slave of all. Okay? If you desire in my kingdom and as part of my group to be the greatest, you're going to be servant of everyone. Every person, every individual will be important to you. Not someone to step on to get moved ahead in life, but someone that you can go and wash, as the Lord's going to demonstrate for his disciples later on, wash their feet, which was the, the job of a lowly of servant, the lowliest of servants. He says, he, the first, the one that desires to be the supreme shall be last of all and servant of all. In verse 36, he just did this. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him up in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receive not me, but him that sent me. See, when an individual is doing the work of God and they are attempting to do a work for God, what you will find is that they will receive anyone because that's what Christ did. And for an individual to accept a child is to accept what Jesus was doing. 
It's to accept what he was like. And not only are you receiving what Jesus was like, you're receiving what God is like. His heart is one of compassion for everyone, for all people. A child is least because it has no authority, is under the care and responsibility of others. It has no position in life. They have no position. And a child is one that has no power. In fact, the disciple, as you think through this, is to serve like a child in their littleness and leastness. Service done in, the child, done in Jesus' name means that one is doing the service unto the Lord. Even giving a cup of cold water, you're doing service for Christ. You have the heart of Christ. And we may think that our service and our work with children is in vain. Ladies, as you're in the nursery, you're thinking, what am I doing here with these children? You're having the heart of Christ. You have the opportunity to minister to them, reflect what Christ is like. And Jesus' heart is delighted by that. Those of you that work in children's ministry on Sunday morning or on Wednesday nights that you serve, and you say, I don't know why I'm spending my time with children like this. It's because you're reflecting the heart of Christ. He has a heart for those children uh, more than you have a heart for those children. He delights in them. He has compassion for them. He loves them. And as we head into a, a week like this where we're going to spend our energy ministering to children, say, why do we do it? Because according to Christ and by His heart, Every person is important, including the smallest of children, all the way to the ones that are 85 and 95, you know, the big kids. <clears throat> God's got a concern for all of them, but he does have a heart for children, a compassion for them. And as you serve this week, those of you that are part of the service this week, uh, realize this, you have an opportunity to reflect the heart of Christ to perhaps individuals that don't understand that kind of love and care. They don't receive that and they don't understand that. Well, you have an opportunity to reflect what Christ is like and minister the compassion and the heart of graciousness and mercifulness that they may not ever see. And so for us, as we go into this week, just realize this, we are reflecting the heart of the Savior, a compassion for children that he had, even though he was the most, or put it this way, the busiest person in the universe. He still had time for children to show them goodness and kindness, but to show them his heart. And so we ought to also, in our ministry, in the week ahead and weeks ahead, realize that in our work in children's ministries and the like, that we're just reflecting the heart of what Jesus Christ is like. Lord, we thank you. You've given us opportunities in families, 
and in our church to minister to children. May we have more of your heart, your compassion, your graciousness, your goodness when it comes to dealing with children. May we have a desire for them to have that childlike faith put into Jesus Christ that we would see uh, people at a young age come to know Jesus as Savior, to start their eternal walk with You, that this would start early on in their life. Lord, may we even see this this week where we have individuals that begin to understand the love of Jesus for them, that He died for them in order to save them, that there would be young people this week that this would happen for. Lord, we pray that we would have Your heart as we minister and that we'd have a heart to see young people come to know You and be part of Your kingdom. One day we'll see them in heaven, small and great, rejoicing and praising You. Lord, may we have uh, Your compassion. May we minister in Your strength and reflect the heart of Christ as we try and reach children with who You are and with the message that will give them eternal life. We love you. We thank you for all you've done for us. We praise you in Christ's name.